We at The Daily Wire were honored this morning to interview our nation's President Barack Obama. I'd now like to read you the transcript of that Q&A. Q. Mr. President, thank you for being here. Last week, the director of the FBI told us that Hillary Clinton repeatedly lied to the American public and likely allowed highly classified information to be seen by our enemies. And yet immediately afterward, you imply that she was more qualified to be president than any candidate ever. How do you justify that assessment? A. Well, now, it would be unfair to say that I called her, wait, look over there, a dead black man, a white police officer, shooting, killing, racism, death, look, quick, run for your lives, black people dying, white people killing, cops, guns, racism, destruction, look, look. Q. Uh, okay. Maybe we should try another topic. Uh, in August of 2012, you said that Assad's use of chemical weapons would be a, quote, red line for you in Syria. And yet Assad did use chemical weapons, and you did nothing as the Syrian fighting metastasized, causing an international refugee crisis. What happened? A. First of all, I didn't draw a red line. The world drew a red line. I was trying to erase the red line with my foot. That's the only reason I even mentioned it. But look over there! Dead black people, living policemen, gunshots, black mothers weeping, policemen in riot gear. Look how mean they look. Look how black the black people are. America held slaves. Now everyone's dead. Quick! It's a crisis. Everyone should hate one another. Oh, the humanity, look! Q. <laughs> Right. Well, if we could just uh, stick with the, the Middle East for a moment, in the months before you took office in 2009, the fighting in Iraq had essentially ceased due to George W. Bush's surge. But in 2011, you withdrew all our forces there. And since then, an Islamist insurgency has engulfed the region, facilitating the rise of ISIS. Do you regret your decision? A. Well, it was not my decision to withdraw our forces. It was someone else's decision. Someone else has been making very bad decisions. And then now I get blamed for it as if it were my decision. Wait, oh my God, look, a black man has been shot for selling CDs. Another one has been shot for selling cigarettes. White policemen ranging the country with guns are shooting young black men for selling things. Women are weeping. Martin Luther King is dead. The promise of America is unfulfilled. Racism, racism, racism. Look, look, look over there. Q. Well, okay, Mr. President, since... You seem determined to talk about black people and the police. Five officers were assassinated this weekend in Dallas by a black racist, and 44% more officers have been killed this year than last. Who's to blame for that? A. Look, look, look over there. Just don't look at me. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. <laughs> Worst, yeah, yeah, worse. Worst Clavenless weekend ever. I mean, the worst Clavenless. You know, I'm going to have to sit here. I was thinking I'm going to have to sit here like the girl at the end of Secretary. Remember the masochist and, and her, her sadistic boss, her, her master boss, tells her, just sit there and don't move. So she just sits there for like 48 hours in her own filth until he comes. That's what I'm going to have to do here every weekend if you guys don't let stop destroying our country. Listen, I think the important thing is in the wake of the, the tragic events, it's important that we don't, America doesn't come apart and, and we all start hating one another. I think we should stand together as one and hate Barack Obama because he is the worst president ever. I mean, all right, so we're live on Facebook, right, for 15 minutes. Yay, here we are. We're live on Facebook. And then after the 15 minutes, you can come to The Daily Wire, hear the rest of the show. And if you're not so damn cheap, you could just subscribe and <laughs> you know, pry those eight bucks a month out of your hand and you could subscribe. And then you can watch the show, the whole show, 
and you can send stuff into the mailbag. Yay, the mailbag, and when we will answer all your questions. All right, so uh, look, I, I, I don't mean to get too dark, but this is really horrible. I mean, this was, a, this was a, a genuinely horrible weekend, and I have to admit, I have to admit, dead cops piss me off. It pisses me off when people kill cops, and I, it's like so... If I get a little bit <laughs> on edge, that's why. I really feel these guys are out there. Look, you know, I'm not going to tell you they're all heroes. I'm not going to tell you they're all good people. I'm just saying that what they do for a living is they go out there and they protect us so we can do all the other things we do. You know, if you're reading a book, if you're going to the movies, if you're, you know, walking with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, that's because of the cops. That's because of the cops. And you don't see them when they pull you over and they give them a ticket. They give you a ticket. It's suddenly like a rotten copy, you know, because he doesn't want you to wrap yourself around a phone pole, you know. And when, and when he's out there, you know, busting people, People and giving people a hard time because they're breaking the law. It's so the people can do the things that make a civilization. So it really, really bothers me. So let's. Uh, this starts. This starts with two more shootings that were uh, the unfortunate, terrible thing about these shootings is they happened as Hillary Clinton <laughs> was coming under attention from the FBI, and the FBI just showed proved that not only did she lie about everything, but she exposed all her information to the Russians. And unfortunately, these two black guys, one in Minnesota, one in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, were shot. As always, as always, there's video, and it's emotional, and it's terrible, and all this stuff, but the facts are still coming out. And it doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you, as a national news story, it doesn't matter. There are going to be bad shootings. You know, the cops have to kill people sometimes. That's a terrible thing. And some of those shootings, some cops are bad at what they do. Some cops are good at what they do and just make a terrible mistake in the moment of decision. Maybe a cop here and there is a racist and does something really bad. It, that's not the point. That is not the point. Obama is in Warsaw, right? He's in Warsaw, and he stops to make this speech, the first Obama cut. I can't comment on the specific facts of these cases. And I have full confidence in the Justice Department's ability to conduct a thorough and fair inquiry. But what I can say is that all of us as Americans should be troubled by these shootings, because these are not isolated incidents. They're symptomatic of a broader set of racial disparities that exist in our criminal justice system. And I just want to give people a few statistics uh, to try to put in context why emotions are so raw around these issues. According to various studies, not just one, but a wide range of studies that have been carried out over a number of years. African Americans are 30% more likely than whites to be pulled over. After being pulled over, African Americans and Hispanics are three times more likely to be searched. Last year, African Americans were shot by police at more than twice the rate of whites. Everything about that is wrong. Everything about it is wrong, and it's about, it's about the narrative. First of all, those statistics are meaningless because they don't take into account whether black people commit more crimes, whether Hispanics commit more crimes, whether black people reacted differently when pulled over. I'm not even going to talk about yet the idea of the tension between 
the police, because this is the new narrative they're selling, is the fact of the emotion, that they, first they create the emotion, they create the distrust, and then they say, well, the distrust is a problem. And yes, it is, it is a problem, but that's not what he's talking about. I just want to talk about narrative for a minute, you know? This is, what I've, this is how I've spent my life making a living, is with narrative. You don't tell a story because of its individual qualities. Shakespeare doesn't write Hamlet because he wants you to know about what it's like to be a prince in Denmark. Nobody ever sits down and discuss, discusses Hamlet and says, you know, what does this tell us about the, you know, the Denmark principate? Because who cares? Who cares about the Denmark, you know, the principality in Denmark? What you care about is the way Hamlet represents something about the human condition. Every story is representative, whether it's a true story or a, a fictional story. The way the mainstream media works and the way Obama manipulates the mainstream media is this. Here's the, I've said this before. I'm going to read it off the page. It's the first rule of mainstream media news coverage in America. Whenever the prejudices and illusions of left-wingers are confirmed by an individual incident, the incident is treated as representative. When those prejudices and illusions are contradicted, the incident is considered an aberration, and treating it as representative is deemed hateful. Okay, so what does that mean? It means a white guy in Charleston, a savage, racist, crazy man in Charleston, shoots some black people in a church, and suddenly, you know, the, all Confederate flags have to be taken down. It's, it just shows you there's still racism in America. You know, race, America's a racist country. In Dallas, a, the same, it's the same guy, a same guy. He's a racist, crazy man, shoots a bunch of white people. Is that representative of the race, of the black racism in America? When a Muslim kills somebody, more to the point, really, that's the, that's where, suddenly it's like, don't judge all Muslims. Don't judge all, you know, don't, you know, so suddenly it's not representative and it's hateful to say it is representative. That's the way they manipulate the narrative. And so when he gets up and says, when he gets up and says, I can't judge these individual incidents, but the point is they're symptomatic. I mean, think about that for a minute. Symptomatic of what? Are they symptomatic of policemen have to defend themselves? Are they, are they symptomatic of the fact that blacks are more violent than whites? You know, what are they symptomatic of? He's deciding what they're symptomatic of, and the statistics that he quotes are meaningless. Okay, so now people are ginned up, right? Because the guy is, the president is the main narrative setter of the country. He's setting the narrative. Now people are ginned up. They go out for a Black Lives Matter protest. Now, I don't like Black Lives Matter. I think the whole idea that Black Lives Matter is inherently racist, but let's, but let's put that aside. There are plenty of protests in this country. This was a peaceful protest. This guy who opened fire was not part of the Black Lives Matter movement. He was a crazy guy. Let's, let's listen to uh, David Brown, the Dallas police chief, describing uh, the arrest of this, this guy. What's his name? Micah Johnson. It appears that uh, our search of this suspect's home in Mesquite uh, leads us to believe, uh, based on evidence of bomb-making materials in a journal, that uh, this suspect had been practicing uh, explosive uh, detonations and that the materials were such that, that it was large enough to have devastating effects uh, throughout uh, our city and, and our North Texas area. Uh, we're convinced that this suspect had other plans uh, and, and thought that uh, what he was doing was uh, righteous and believed that uh, he was going to make law enforcement and, and target law enforcement uh, make us pay for what he sees as uh, law enforcement's efforts uh, to punish uh, people of color. I think that this killer obviously had uh, some delusion. Uh, there was quite a bit of rambling in the journal uh, that, that's hard to decipher. I can just add 
at the scene where he was killed, there was some, also he wrote some lettering in blood on the walls, uh, which leads us to believe he was wounded on the way up the stairwell on the second floor of the El Centro building and uh, where we detonated the device to, to end the standoff, there, there was more lettering written in his own blood. What did he and write? We are, we, we are trying to de decipher that, uh, but he wrote the letters RB. So I don't know yet what the RB means. The cops sent a robot up with some C4 explosives and blew him up, which was cool. That's cool, at least. <laughs> I was like, I, I heard that. I thought, cool, you know, <laughs> like, good job, good job. You know, so Obama comes out and he says, oh, hard to untangle the motives of this shoot, right? Because Obama is all about narrative. He's all about narrative. You know, uh, Loretta Lynch saying of, of the Orlando shooting, we may never know the motives of this guy who said he killed because of ISIS. We may never know. We may never, you know, like, how could we know? Just And here's this guy. He's obviously, like I said, he's the same dude as the guy in Charleston, the exact same person in Brown. That's all the difference is, you know, in my religion, we call him Satan. You know, it's just, it's just evil, takes people over. And they do this stuff. He's crazy. And it's, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect on black Lives Matter because he wasn't part of them, but it does reflect, it does reflect on the narrative that is being used to gin people up and tear people apart because this is not what's happening in the country. And, and you know, by the way, well, first, first, let's just hear for a minute. This guy Brown, who really has come, he came across great. This is the Dallas police chief. He, he reflects on, um, you know, the, the guy asked him, Jake Tapper asks him, well, you know, what do you have to say to these protesters? So listen to this. What do you say to the people who were protesting in Louisiana last night or the people who were protesting in Minnesota last night, um, majority African-American protesters who feel as though uh, their lives don't matter as much to the police? Uh, what do you say to them? We're so sworn to protect you and your right to protest, and we'll give our lives for it. And it's sort of like uh, being in a relationship where uh, you love that person, but that person can't express or show you love back. I don't know if you've been in a relationship like that before, Jake, uh, but that's a tough relationship to be in where we show our love because there's no greater love than to give your life for someone. And that's what we're continuing to be willing to do. Uh, and we just need to hear from the protesters back to us. We appreciate the work you do uh, for us in our right to protest. That, that should be fairly easy. <laughs> That's an amazing, amazing emotional statement that the police are in a relationship with the protesters. It's like the relationship of a lover who is not being loved in return, that they're re re ready to risk their life. And that's a gospel quote, no greater love. That's a, you know, a quote from the New Testament, no greater love, but to give your life for a friend. And they're willing to give their life. That's how much they love the people and love the people's rights. But these people don't, you know, and let me ask you this. Oh, yeah, we got to say goodbye to Facebook. So come back to the Daily Wire and hear the rest. Um, you know, here's, here's my question about David Brown. Why isn't he black people? When, when Obama's talking about black people, when people are talking about white, oh, white people and black people, why, why doesn't David Brown represent? Why is it always the thugs, these punks, these street punks who represent black people? That's not the world anymore. That's not the world anymore, you know? I mean, that is not the, our experience. Uh, you know, I, I live in L.A. It's a mixed city. It's a city with a lot more uh, integration than it used to have. 
you know, why doesn't David Brown represent? Why, when people talk about black people, why are they always thinking about these guys, you know, selling, doing illegal stuff on the street instead of David Brown? That guy's an all-American hero. That guy's an all-American hero. Fifty years ago, that guy would have been blonde and had a chiseled, you know, dimple on his chin. That would have been the, and everybody would have said, oh yeah, he's an all-American hero. Now that's what an all-American hero looks like. Why isn't that black people? Because the narrative, then you know. Now Obama backtracks. Play the next Obama cut. Now he, suddenly he backtracks. Oh yeah, I didn't mean. I didn't mean to, to get everybody all excited. If communities are mistrustful of the police, that makes those law enforcement officers who are doing a great job and are doing the right thing. It makes their lives harder. So, so you know. When, when people say black lives matter, that doesn't mean blue lives don't matter. It just means all lives matter. But right now, the big concern is the fact that the data shows black folks are more vulnerable to these kinds of incidents. This isn't a matter of us comparing the value of lives. This is recognizing that there is a particular burden that is being placed on a group of our fellow citizens. And we should care about that. We can't dismiss it. You know, that's that high-pitched, stuttering voice he gets when it's not his fault. You know, I didn't draw a red line. It's not my decision to pull out of Iraq. You know, and, and now it's, you know, he, he says, he said, racism is in America's DNA. That's what he said. Oh, but I'm not dividing the country. I'm not dividing the country. He says we're not as divided. We're shooting each other in the streets. We're not as divided as people. Some people may say. <laughs> Racism. You know, he also. He's also when he, before he took office, he said he thanked the Moses generation of civil rights fighters who take, took us 90 percent of the way. He said we still have to go 10 percent of the way more. You think we've gotten closer to the promised land, <laughs> or something? Some feels like we sort of took a left turn at the Jordan. You know, <laughs> it feels like we're sort of wandering around. And by the way, when he says when Black Lives uh, Matter, that doesn't mean that Blue Lives don't matter. Let's not forget that the uh, the governor of Maryland, when he was a Democrat candidate, Martin O'Malley, and Bernie Sanders, too, were shouted down by Black Lives Matter for saying all lives matter. Martin O'Malley, we, here's the video. He had to apologize for saying all lives matter. That was a mistake on my part, and I meant no disrespect, and I did not mean uh, uh, to be insensitive in any way or to communicate that I did not understand the tremendous passion, commitment, and, uh, and uh, uh, feeling and, and depth of feeling that all of us should be attaching to this issue. It's like a Soviet show trial. You have to go in like kowtow before the leftist narrative of racism. I mean, that's what it is. And by the way, just by the way, today, front page, New York Times, surprising new evidence, surprising new evidence shows <coughs> bias in police use of force. There is a bias in police use of force, but not in shootings. There's no bias in police shootings. Okay, first of all, I just love that word surprising, okay, because it's like the word offensive that they use in headlines now. He used offensive, offensive language. You think, wasn't offensive to me. You know, <laughs> where did it get it? Not surprising to me that the police are, don't use bias. All right, here's the, a new study confirms that black men and women are treated differently in the hands of law enforcement. They are more likely to be touched, handcuffed, pushed to the ground, or pepper sprayed by a police officer, even after accounting for how, where, and when they encounter the police. But when it comes to the most lethal, lethal form of 
uh, force police shootings, the study finds no racial bias. It is the most surprising result of my career, said Roland G. Fryer, Jr., the author of the study and a professor of economics at Harvard. Listen to that guy's name, by the way, Roger, Roland G. Fryer. You're going to hear from him because he's a data-oriented black professor, one of the youngest professors ever to get tenure at Harvard, and he takes on some very, very controversial stuff. For instance, he tested whether to see if lower uh, IQ rates in blacks were genetic or whether they were because of the uh, culture of, that they were growing up in. <clears throat> and his evidence, which is pretty sa sound, shows that it's because of the culture. Like when they're, when ba they're babies, their IQ is pretty much the same. At two, they start, they start to divert. So that's obviously a cultural thing. But again, it's this narr the narrative is wrong. And, this, and why? Why are they selling this now? You know, let, let's just pause for a second when we're listening to Obama talk about Black Lives Matter. <clears throat> let's listen to Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani, mayor of New York, best friend the black man ever had. 4,000 lives, I believe, is the proper statistic for the number who were saved by his policing techniques. And every single day, the New York Times called him a racist. Every day. Remember, it was Giuliani time. When a black guy got beaten up by a lousy cop, it was Giuliani time. They spread that lie that the cop said that. We don't have to be nice to you anymore. It's Giuliani time. That didn't happen. And they, no, nobody ever said it, but they spread that. This guy saved all those lives by installing this no tolerance. Just listen to what he says about black lives matter. So maybe whites have to look at it differently and blacks have to look at it differently. Whites have to realize that African-American men have a fear and boys have a fear of being confronted by the police because of some of these incidents. Some people may consider it rational. Some people may consider it irrational, but it's a reality. It, it exists. And there's a second reality in the, in the black community. The second reality in the black community is there's too much violence in the black community. So a black will die 1% or less at the hands of the police and 99% at the hands of a civilian, most often another black. So if you want to protect black lives. So that's Giuliani, you know, doling out some facts that if you're going to get killed, it's the people that the police arrest who are going to kill you. It's not the police who are going to kill you, whether you're black or white. But again, he has to say, as we all have to say, that the fact that black people don't trust the police makes the relationship, you know, you want to go into a, a neighborhood and have the trust of the law-abiding people. And remember, remember, vast majority of the people in black neighborhoods, as in white neighborhoods, are law-abiding people. And those are the people that need the police and trust the police and want the police. And you could see them after these killings, they were weeping for the cops, you know, they, you know, they understand. <clears throat> But it's not fair to gin up that mistrust, as Obama does, with false statistics and false narrative and false representation, taking the incidents and making them representative. That's what we're talking about, taking a single individual incidents and saying that they're symptomatic. That's what he does. It's not fair to gin up that mistrust and then blame that mistrust when you created it. You know, Myron Magnet, brilliant guy and a friend of mine, he brought me into City Journal uh, where I'm now a contributing editor. He was the editor of City Journal. He wrote, he wrote a wonderful book, I, I believe it was called The Dream and the Nightmare, of how uh, the dreams of the 60s, the liberal dreams of the 60s, became the nightmarish, uh, crime-ridden streets of the, of the 1970s. And he wrote an article in City Journal today, and you should really read it, because I haven't got time to read the whole thing, but you really should look at it, because he knows so much about this. 
But he says, after Thursday's terrorist slaughter of policemen in Dallas, it's fair to say that Barack Obama might well be the worst president in U.S. history. Here's why. The keynote of America's domestic politics for the last 60 or 70 years has been the nation's effort to undo the heinous wrongs that slavery and Jim Crow perpetrated on black Americans ever since the first slave was brought here in the 1640s. And he then talks about all the efforts to get kids into school. And remember, you know, this stuff was real, folks. You know, people are forgetting, just like they're forgetting the Holocaust, but this stuff was real. Governors of states, you know, elected officials stood in schoolhouse doorways with baseball bats to keep brown children out. You know, <laughs> that's what they, that happened. You know, cops set dogs on marchers. They weren't doing what David Brown was talking about, risking their lives. They set dogs on peaceful marchers. Those things really happened. This legacy of racism is real. Nobody said it's not. But here's the thing, you know. Well, let me let me finish what Myron has to say. He talks about how this zeal for civil rights became zealotry and how we started to, uh, you know, address things in all the wrong ways, to basically say that the government could solve these problems. We give you welfare. We're going to give you affirmative action. We're going to stop policing your neighborhoods. One of the things they did, because, you know, it was righteous for blacks to be violent because they'd been so oppressed. And what he finally says is, look, at the end of the Civil War, Lincoln addressed the fact that there was going to be an immense cost for paying the sin of slavery. In the final accounting, he said, it might turn out that, and this is Lincoln speaking, all the wealth piled up by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. He was talking about the Civil War, that people were going to have to die to erase this terrible sin of slavery. But then when it was over, he said, with malice toward none, with charity for all, let us bind up the nation's wounds. And Myron goes on to say, unlike Lincoln, America's first black president didn't bind up the nation's wounds, but scratched them open every time police killed a black man. And that is the thing, you know. I mean, Obama has sold this narrative because it works for him. I, I, I don't think he's cynical. I actually think he believes this stuff. But it's the 1970s. He's selling us the 1970s, and he's bringing the horrible 1970s back, you know? And people, this, this thing with Obama, you know, he's never to blame. He's never to blame for anything. He never said it. He never did it. If it goes bad, it wasn't him. It was somebody else. The world drew the red line. He didn't say all this stuff. He didn't bring this stuff to the fore. Well, he did. He did do it. And he used his tenor as a first black president with a, with a black head of the Justice Department. I mean, at this point, it's clear that America is willing to set this stuff aside. Is, are there individual racists? Sure. Is there racism in... In uh, institutional racism in America, no, there's not. There just not isn't anymore. He, he could have healed this. It was almost, we were almost there, and he has set us back. And for that, he bears a terrible responsibility. And one of the reasons he has done this, by the way, is to save his own failed presidency. His presidency is a failure, but nobody wants to say the first black president is a failure. Because that's part of that's their racial narrative. It's only by setting aside the color of his skin and thinking about the, the badness of his ideas that you can see his presidency for what it is, a total failure. Just a terrible weekend, guys. Come on. Come on. I can't stay here forever. I have to tell you one quick funny story before then get out of this darkness. You know, I have this book coming out, my, my, the uh, memoir of my conversion to Christianity, The Great Good Thing. 
It's called The Great Good Thing, A uh, Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. And it got, it, this is the point, it, it doesn't come out until September, though you can pre-order it now on Amazon or any of those, and I hope you will. But this is the point when you start to get what are called pre-pub reviews. So Publishers Weekly is kind of the variety of, uh, it's the trade paper of publishing. So Publishers Weekly brought out a review, and the review was wonderful. They called it fascinating. They called it compelling. It was a wonderful, wonderful review. And this is just for booksellers. It's not for the, the public. But part of this story of my life is this amazing marriage I have had to my wife and what a wonderful marriage it has been and how the love that exists between a man and a woman in a marriage kind of set me on the path. One of the things that set me on the path to understanding that there was a greater love that informed that love and that gave that love to us. So this guy... I think he read the book, but I just don't think he wrote the sentence grammatically right. <laughs> and the book is practically a love letter to my wife. So he's writing this review. And, and I talk about how I went into a terrible period of despair in my late 20s. Terrible, terrible suicidal period. I've really lived two lives. I've lived that period up till that point and this amazing period I had afterwards of, of joy and growth and happiness. But up until that point, I was in terrible despair. And so he wrote, writes, marriage, <laughs> marriage added to the complex picture filling the author with a despair that would lead him to seek professional help. <laughs> I don't think that's what he meant to say, but I've been, I've been chasing my wife around the house all weekend long, reading her sentence over and over again. You filled the author with a despair. <laughs> if you ever want to see a man struck down with a copy of Publishers Weekly, you can come to my house. <laughs> it's like, grammar is a lost art, and it's, it's not like there are no victims in the lost art of crime. Uh, all, right. all right, so this week, Stuff I Like is going to be great books that you can read in a couple hours. Okay? It's like, this is like if you want a quick thing, read The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, one of the greatest uh, poems, one of the most biggest best-selling poems. Uh, it's actually a book of poems, of quatrains. It was theoretically written by a medieval Muslim guy. But nobody is quite sure whether it was written by him or by Fitzgerald, Edward Fitzgerald, the guy who said he translated them. It's kind of like it's half the work of Omar Khayyam, but really it's also these translations because the translations are really different. It was, uh, it was written in um, 1859 or published in 1859. Nobody noticed it. It was thrown into a remainder bin. And a, a, a guy found it in the remainder bin and started to hand it out to his pals, read it, and started to hand it out to his pals, many of whom were some of the most famous artists of the Victorian age. And so it became this big thing. The most famous verse from it is a book of verses underneath the bough, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness. Oh, wilderness, we're paradise enow, which means enough. The wilderness is paradise. And there's a play called Our Wilderness. Uh, you know, this used, it used to be, every, everybody used to read this. When I was in elementary school, when I was in elementary school, I knew that verse. A book of verses underneath the bough, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou. Anyway, it's a, it's a book about how you should live for the moment. You know, it, uh, it's, it's kind of like Ecclesiastes, eat, drink, and be merry. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book of poems, uh, book of quatrains, it just fabulous to read, and you can read it in a couple hours and be done. And it'll keep you out of trouble while I'm off the air, because otherwise we cannot go on like this. <laughs> just, just too, all right, hopefully things are going to get better as we push into the Claven-filled week. I hope so. Be here and we'll find out. Tomorrow's Tuesday. We'll have a guest on to talk about Dinesh D'Souza's new film. That'll, that'll be exciting. All right, so be there for that. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Thank you for being here. <laughs>